Friends, would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. I will read chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my accuser. For a while he refused. But later, he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are times when we have no idea what an outcome will be. For Kelly Gissen, Gissendainer, the 17 years leading up to Tuesday, September 29th, 2015, was a period of such a time. On the morning of September 29th, Kelly Gissendaner, the sole woman to be on death row in the state of Georgia, was surrounded by a community of people who had been advocating on her behalf. They were friends, her children, a legal team clergy, and theology instructors from a local seminary. And they had come to her final clemency hearing before the Board of Pardons and Paroles. They had already given careful, prepared testimony to accompany Kelly's first clemency application. Many people contributed their voices to this testimony, correctional officers, patrol, I mean, prison administrators, prison residents, legal team members, and theology instructors. Clemency was denied, and her execution was scheduled. Because of some mistake in preparing the lethal chemical injection, however, Kelly's execution was postponed. And once again, her advocates got to work this time telling Kelly's sto story broadly to media outlets like the New York Times, CNN, the Washington Post, Fox News, and the Christian Broadcasting Network. Petitions were circulated, signed, and sent to the governor of Georgia. Short documentaries were produced. Prayer vigils were hosted across the country. Holding out hope, Kelly's community of advocates campaigned the Board of Pardons and Paroles and the governor who appointed those members to the board to commute
Kelly's death sentence to life sentence in prison without parole. In the end, clemency was not given. And after 17 years in prison, Kelly was executed. I learned about Kelly's story when I read the book, You Shall Not Condemn, written by Jennifer McBride. The book is really a memorial to Kelly. Jennifer met Kelly in 2010 when Kelly, incarcerated, had enrolled in a Certificate of Theological Studies program of Emory University's Candler School of Theology. The certificate program was open to any incarcerated person who at least held a GED or a high school diploma. Jennifer was the director of this certificate program at the prison, and she was Kelly's theology professor. By the time Jennifer met Kelly in 2010, Kelly had already undergone a steady personal transformation that had begun during the first few years of her prison term. I sent a team of dedicated spiritual mentors, prison chaplains and pastoral counselors helped her over the course of her entire time in prison to make steady change from being an angry, self-centered person with little insight into someone who could confront the terrible truth of what she did and take responsibility for it and into someone who placed her trust and hope in God and the future that God had in store for her. It was a transformation that Kelly tried to describe in her clemency application to the Board of Pardons and Paroles. She wrote, it is impossible to put into words the overwhelming sorrow and remorse I feel for my involvement in the murder of my husband, Douglas Gissenander. Doug was a wonderful person and a loving and generous husband and father. Because of my actions, our children lost their beloved father, the Gissendaner family lost their beloved son, brother, and uncle, and our community lost one of its finest citizens. I wish I could truly express how sorry I am for what I did, but there is just no way to capture the depth of my sorrow and regret. I would change everything if I could. There are no excuses for what I did. I am fully responsible for my role in my husband's murder. I became so self-centered and bitter about my life and who I had become that I lost all judgment. I will never understand how I let myself fall into such evil. But I have learned firsthand that no one, not even me, is beyond redemption through God's grace and mercy. Kelly's clemency application also included many statements of those who had observed her conduct over many years in prison. They spoke of the consistency of her efforts to take responsibility for her actions and of her desire and efforts not only to rebuild her life from the wreckage she had caused, but also to help others to do the same. Within the confines of the correctional institution, she had so ministered to other incarcerated women that by the time Jennifer McBride met Kelly in 2010, Kelly's positive influence across the prison was well known already. It was, however, 
the theological education that Kelly gained in prison that ignited her spirit. And the more she learned, the more she wanted to share with others, both inside and outside of prison, the hope she had found in the gospel. To that end, she composed a 90-day devotional journal that she entitled, A Journey of Hope. In the preface to this journal, she wrote, over the course of the Certificate in Theological Studies program and through much reading and studying, I've learned that the Bible is not a book of saints, but of sinners and prisoners. As I began to read the Bible, I discovered that it was full of people like me who had made big mistakes, caused a lot of pain, had been forgiven and healed. After I committed my life to Christ, I saw the same healing process slowly take place in me. I had been bruised and battered inside. Have you? Jesus Christ restored me. I am no longer bent on destruction, but filled with new life and love. One of the theologians whose writings meant the most to Kelly was German theologian Jürgen Moltmann. After reading some of his work in class, she wrote a letter to him. She also sent him a copy of her devotional journal, which he found so meaningful that he began each day reading one of the entries. Professor Moltmann was so impressed and moved by her correspondence that he visited her when he next traveled from his home in Tubing in Germany to Atlanta, Georgia to give a lecture at Emory University. And over the next five years, they corresponded about theology. And when it was time for Kelly to graduate, Professor Moltmann returned to Georgia to deliver the keynote address at the theology graduation for Kelly's class. Here's a bit of what he said. You will receive today your certificates in theological studies. When I first heard of your study of theology in prison, Pictures of my youth and of the beginning of my own theological studies emerged from the depth of my memory. Yes, I remember. My theological studies started in a poor prisoner of war camp after World War II. I was 18 years old when I became a prisoner of war for more than three years in a camp of forced labor in Kilmarnock, Scotland. I read for the first time in my life the Bible and encountered Jesus. I hadn't decided for Christ, but I am certain Christ found me there when I was lost in sadness and desperation. He found me as Christ has come to seek what is lost. I tried to understand what had happened to me. We had a theological school behind barbed wire. Excluded from time and the world, imprisoned professors taught imprisoned students free theology. We studied Bible, church history, and theology, but we also tried to come to terms with our death experiences at the end of the war. Theology was for us at that time an existential experience of healing our wounded souls. These were the beginnings of my theological studies and my first experiences of the Church of Christ 
the church in prison camps. Later, I became a pastor and a professor of theology, but deep in my heart, there is still sitting a frightened and sad POW. Professor Moltmann ended with these words. Allow me to congratulate you. You are really theologians, and in fact, excellent theologians. I would like to encourage you. Go on and take the next course in theological studies, and you must not only learn from other theologians, but develop your own thoughts. We need your spiritual insights and theological reflections. There is an age-old community of all theologians, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They are our brothers and sisters in the spirit of God. We need you. The theology in the world needs the theology in prison. Theologian Jennifer McBride writes about what it was like to advocate for and pray without ceasing for Kelly to be allowed to live. Sometimes it seemed as though the governor of Georgia was acting like Pilate, washing his hands of responsibility as he appealed to his lack of authority over the matter. When the governor had released a statement telling people to quit bothering him about Kelly, it felt as though they were living the parable Jesus told in Luke 18. At those times, they likened themselves to the woman in the parable, for they were willing to persist in crying out for restorative justice, not retributive justice, until those in authority would succumb just to avoid becoming worn out by them. In the end, we know that despite all their persistence, clemency was not granted. It turned out that the months of waiting for the final hearing was... For Kelly, a dark time of anxiety. It was also a time of persistent prayer. I can't help but wonder what she spoke in her prayers, how her prayers may have changed over time, and how she may have been changed by praying. When we pray with persistence, what happens? I can only speak from my experience. At those times in my life when I have prayed to God with persistence, which isn't that often, I just want to say, to pray with persistence about something, I can count on one hand the number of times I have prayed with persistence for something. I have found at those times that the more persistently I pray, the more Christ leads me through a series of shifts in my understanding. While at the beginning of my journey, I may identify myself first with that widow who insists on a certain outcome, over time, in the truthfulness that prayer requires, I come to recognize that I have also been acting like a judge, placing blame and condemnation on some. 
It can take a long time to get to this point of self-recognition. It can take even more persistence in prayer to wear down that inner judge so that we can hand over judgment to God alone. To pray without judging, to pray without blaming, is to trust God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I imagine that over the 17 years on death row, as Kelly learned to pray persistently, Christ led her to a faithfulness tied not so much to an outcome that she had in mind, but tenaciously to a God who promised to make all things new. Persistence in prayer enabled her, come what may, to hold fast to God. Jesus tells this parable that we might persist in prayer too. His whole life, Jesus prayed. He prayed in the wilderness in preparation for his public ministry. And he prayed in the garden in preparation for his execution. And even there in the garden, we find Jesus shifting his own prayer in mid-thought. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. In one of her final letters to Professor Moltmann, Kelly Gissendainer shared the news that her clemency appeal was denied and that she was now awaiting an execution date. In that letter she wrote, what I do know when I don't know anything else is that God is in control of all of this. Her persistence in prayer enabled her even at the end to say, I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. This is Kelly's testimony, as it is ours, that God has finished neither with her, nor with us, nor with this world. That despite the injustices of our world, God continues to make all things new. Amen.